Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on 5x5. Bandwidth for June has been provided by Cashfly, the fastest, most reliable CDN in the business. Cashfly delivers all of our content here at 5x5, and they really are the best. Check them out at cashfly.com, C-A-C-H-E, fly, and let them know you heard about them on 5x5. My guest this week is Brian Alvey, the chief scientist of Seros and an entrepreneur, investor, and an advisor. How's it going, Brian? Is great. I'm excited. I'm, I'm excited that you're excited. So you're, you're, uh, let's, let's start with Meet the Makers, which is something that you did in the past. You tell me, tell me exactly what that was. Yeah, it was, um, well, it was a couple different things and it's, it's way in the past, you know, compared to the rest of the internet right now. So in 2002, in the sort of the middle and, and end of the, the dot-com crash, there's really dark days. Um, I, I decided I'm going to do events. And event companies were going out of business left and right. I'm like, I'll just do events. I'll get people in a room. This will be great. Get sponsors. And it worked out. What meet the premise of Meet the Makers was get to meet the makers of all the biggest, coolest stuff on the internet. So the audience, it'd be about a hundred people, and they they were they were webmasters, which was a big, you know, that was still a title in those days. Um, they were designers and developers. They were CTOs, you know. They were the people who actually built things. They weren't like CEOs. Uh, which I used to slam a lot, and then I've been a CEO for years, so I try not to do that too much anymore. But but basically, the audience is all these people who are you know working at agencies and they're building websites and they're on these cool projects. But the people on stage are people they might want to aspire to be, like the rock stars, the people who built the biggest stuff. So my first interview was uh, Dwight Merriman, who invented DoubleClick. And back then, 2002, there was no Gmail, there was no Ajax, there was no there was no AdSense. Like that was that's how the money happens now. But all these things didn't exist. Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, like none of those things existed. And he was up there and I'm like, so how did, how did you build this? Right. And he's, it, was it a machine under your desk? Was it two guys in a garage? Like, tell me the origins of DoubleClick. What language was it written in? How big, you know, how big your, you know, all the servers, all that stuff. So it was a really cool thing where you got to kind of get a peek sort of behind the scenes or we, you know, we called it lovingly uh, behind the screens at, you know, how DoubleClick worked or the two guys who built Monster or the CTO of 1-800-Flowers would talk about the difference between these massive spikes in traffic they'd get on Mother's Day and Valentine's Day and the way it actually works. I think that one was um, Mother's Day was um, there would be this, like, it would be a week of tons and tons of orders and stuff coming in because all the wives and all these people were smart enough to, like, order them a week in advance. And Valentine's Day was this massive crush the night before, like, the 13th of February, all the guys got online to 100 Flowers to order, oh, God, I forgot, Valentine's Day tomorrow. And there was this huge spike. So, you know, we talked about spikes in traffic and the high-end scale things. And it was a lot of fun, these events. Um, you know, I did them in New York and San Francisco. I did three events in 2002, a long time ago. And then the next year, uh, my son, my first kid was born. Uh, he just graduated fifth grade today. Um, so it's, it's been a while. It's pretty wild. Um, and so we stopped doing the events and started doing these online interviews. And then at the same time, uh, my friend Jason and I started this blog company with all these blogs like Engadget and Autoblog and all this stuff and ended up just getting sucked into that and then never went back to do another event or any more interviews for Meet the Makers. So the the modern story about Meet the Makers is, you know, looking back on my career, I've, I've been really blessed. There are hundreds of brands that have used my software. You know, I've, I've worked with a lot of really neat people. I mean, from the start, building sites for like TV Guide and, and Business Week in 1995, like early, early, early days. I've, like I said, I've been blessed, great brands. 
But the most fun I ever had was being on stage. I love being on stage, interviewing people, talking to smart people, you know, just like this about the stuff that they do. And it's a lot of fun. So I want to bring it back, but there are, you know, I don't want to do the events. I mean, the landscape in 2002 was a little weird because everybody was out of work. So, so many people were listed as independent, right? In between jobs. So many people on their LinkedIn today don't even talk about what they did those years because they were just scraping by. They moved back in with their parents. I mean, it was really dark days. And so now, you know, in San Francisco and New York, in any city, there are three or four events per night to go to. So I don't really want to jump back into that and like compete and say like, I'll try to get a hundred people into a room to watch some interview when this is just all over the place happening all the time. So I figured I'll do the, the long form online interviews that I like to do, you know, the rolling stone length, you know, 6,000 word interviews, which are, if you transcribe the podcast that we do today, it's, it's, you know, six, eight, 14,000 words. It's a lot of content. So an hour long phone call is, um, you can get a lot out of that. So I, I like that a lot. So can you, so think, yeah. Do you read uh, six to 8,000 word interviews? You know, the ones I really love. So, so I do, uh, it's funny cause I looked at, so, so I started doing these interviews again. Right. And, uh, I met with a few people and done a couple of like, uh, you know, recorded ones, uh, you know, like Skype, FaceTime audio type things. And as I get them transcribed, I'm kind of like horrified that they are 14,000 words. Um, you know, the big Rolling Stone interviews with like Bono or John Lennon or, you yeah. know, those kinds of guys like Bill Clinton, those are like six, six or 8,000 words. The ones I, and those are good and those have a place, right? It's like the definitive interview of Bono, right? Uh, at least for that year. And the ones that, that I really like are actually the oral histories. So I'm kind of fascinated by those. So I know that you can't just throw out 14,000 words, like you have to trim it, trim two thirds of it out. But that also means that if you ask great questions and you get great answers, you're just going to give them like the gold, the really good stuff. And some people I've talked to that do a lot of uh, interviews and podcasts these days have said, you know, it's not a bad idea to have a strategy to kind of give three levels of this. One is just the, the cliff notes. The, the 18 bullet points or the six bullet points from the interview. And just that's one product. You kind of want the blog, po the blog post recap of the interview that gives the highlights. Then somebody else wants, you know, maybe the bulk of the audience would want to read, you know, a decent long form, you know, four or 5,000, you know, these, these are medium all the time right now. They're really you know, long form, long reads, right? Those kinds of things. And then there are probably another, you know, 10% on one end, 80% in the middle. And then another 10% are like, actually give me all 14,000 words. So, so we'll see, you know, it's tough to, um, sort of serve all of that up all at once, you know, load a browser tab with, uh, 14,000 words is pretty, pretty weird. So I haven't figured out the format for that. And then at the same time, I'm starting another company. So I've got to figure out, am I going to back burner my favorite job ever again? Or is there a way to kind of, uh, do them both at the same time? So we'll say, maybe we'll figure that out today. I, <laughs> um, I don't mean to derail you, but I'm very curious about something. Um, you, you, you have a background. I mean, you built a lot of the, I, I would say infrastructure that is, is common among blogs today. And there are a lot of blogs that are currently running on your original platform. And my, my question is in the future of the CMS, in the future of, of like major blogging, do you see long form articles taking a new form at all? Uh, a new form in terms of somebody will come up with a great way to finally, format. you know, hand them to people at a format, right? Yeah. Uh, but potentially, um, you know, it's it's really hard to say because it's you know, long form is is tough. I, the snowfall and things like that are cute. You know, like there's a good way to do these things. Um, I'm not sure. 
Um, you know, and in terms of the infrastructure I built, it's funny because um, I just want to I want to address that. So I I built a, a bunch of different platforms, but I've had like five eras in my career. And if you look at each, you list out a bunch of brands, and it's it's like you know it makes me feel good. It's, it's impressive. Um, but like I've built proprietary platforms. So for instance, like all these blogs at AOL, but not having to post, not TechCrunch run on my software, right? So it's a subset of things at AOL. It's a proprietary platform, and. I was, uh, you know, I, I, I love Matt Mullenweg and we run into each other a lot and somebody was, you know, saying, oh, you guys are kind of the same. And I'm like, we are kind of the same, but it's funny if you look back over my career, I've built, you know, 22, some number of platforms, all of them proprietary, all of them sort of, you know, not open to the world and I've done well. But if you take his one big platform he built, WordPress, which he effectively gives away. So he built one platform and gives it away for free. I built 25 platforms that I've charged for, and his one free platform <laughs> runs 22% of the internet. And mine runs, you know, some some substantial business. You know, TMZ still runs on some software I wrote, and Gadget, right? All these things at AOL. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff on my software, but it's it's really impressive what he did. So there you go. I, I guess, like my take on that would be, the benefit of building 25 different platforms is that every time you get to start with modern technologies. Whereas when yeah. you, when you're building the same platform for a decade, mm-hmm. you're going you cannot nobody that I've ever seen is capable of predicting uh, software advances five years ahead. And wow. in order to yeah. incorporate them, you end up patching legacy code. And right. and WordPress, like I honestly, I, I like WordPress, but if you have ever developed for WordPress, you've seen. Kind of, uh, it's not ugly. It's it's a little bit. Um, it's legacy. There's a lot of legacy parts to it, and the API has been improved over time while maintaining backwards compatibility. And I think that's one thing that you you. It's probably why you kept starting new platforms, wouldn't you say? Uh, well, well, wow. So you you've touched on three giant themes in there. One is if you build something for everybody, it works for nobody. I've said that for so long. So you're right. If you build like the specific Twitter CMS or the specific whatever it is, right, that'll be way better than trying to take some generic thing and you know jam it into your you know your particular situation. So that, that's one thing. Another is you know back when I was for you know I say between I don't know two thousand seven and twelve something something in there that that sort of like five year uh, era. I was running a CMS company. I was the CEO of a company called CrowdFusion, and. In the eyes of you know the buyers, the CMS market, um, our competitors were WordPress and Drupal and things like that. So I have pretty good a pretty good sense of what they're good at and what they're bad at. And exactly what you said about WordPress is exactly true, which is when you're 10 years old, there's a lot of cruft legacy stuff. There are plugins that are just spaghetti code. It's all procedural, not object oriented, right? It hasn't changed in those 10 years from you know, Matt typing out these, you know, lines of code or taking over somebody else's code base. And so that's totally true. Like that is really hard to escape and it's really hard to change something in place. There are so many examples of people trying to change something in place and it fails. Drupal, on the other hand, this is a really funny thing. I used to slam them. Um, I'm on a mailing list of some people who are like investors in Drupal and things like that. And somebody would talk about Drupal and I was kind of a, a jerk about it. And I would just jump in and just one line, friends don't let friends use Drupal. <laughs> and that was it. Like I would just send that, and and I know, like I know they hate me, but I just couldn't help it because you know people hated Drupal, and and it, the funny thing is, one of the biggest things people hated about Drupal. I mean, number one was it just didn't scale, right? 
that was you know three four years ago. Maybe they're, maybe they're better today. I haven't. I just I don't care anymore. I don't compete against them, so I don't care anymore. But um, but back in the day, they didn't scale. There was you know don't actually have traffic actually touch your Drupal site. It's okay for editors, but really you got to throw caching on the front end, right? But what uh, what Drupal did that I actually thought was cool is exactly what you're talking about, which is from Drupal five to six, from Drupal six to seven. Each time they just blew it all up and like started again with modern programming ideas. And it's going to be completely different. So none of your plugins would work as they upgraded. <laughs> so their entire developer community, all the customers, hated them. But they were actually doing the right thing, which is giving you a CMS that, you know, three years ago the iPad didn't exist. Today the iPad exists. And now we've incorporated things. Or now we've incorporated, you know, modern programming concepts. Maybe we were not so great ten years ago when we started this. So it's funny. You can't kind of please both because if you do nuke it every time, like I have a lot of respect for them for doing that. But at the same time, I know it just pissed off their customers, their developers, all the community. And Drupal upgrades, you know, there are people, and it's the same on the vignette years ago. There's still people using vignette 5 when vignette 8 is out, you know? So it's kind of crazy. And then the last thing was a long time ago with CrowdFusion, I was um, sort of lucky enough to be up on um, up on uh, a stage at TechCrunch 50 in San Francisco. It's like 2009, sort of pitching CrowdFusion for the first time ever, explaining, this is very funny, explaining it's the last CMS you'll ever need. Right, you just this is it, right? And that was the pitch. It was like it kind of does all these things, and I had my my judges were some really really interesting crowd. One was um, Sean Parker, one was Dick Costolo back before he was CEO of Twitter. There was Robert Scoble, there was Reed Hoffman, and uh, somebody else, and they'll hate me for forgetting, but uh, they're not going to listen to this. That's, I won't tell them that about the show. Um, Reed Hoffman, though, basically, I had two really interesting pieces of feedback from the judges. Reed Hoffman said. Um, Nobody is ever the last anything. Like, I totally don't believe your premise, this thing that you're pitching up here, because every three years, it's all new, you know? And then he kind of, he kind of backpedaled and said, well, but you have a plug-in model, and you have this and that going for you, and you're kind of open-sourcing part of it, and like, so maybe you have a shot. So it was kind of, you know, uh, you're doomed. Well, but there's a glimmer of hope. So that was very nice of him. But he's, he's absolutely right. Um, you know, I, I consulted on a video CMS project last year, for um, this big sort of international, it was, it was there's this big international company was building like a, a Netflix for all of Latin America. So it was a really big sort of video CMS over the top streaming, you know, video on demand uh, service. And one of the other people they brought in as a you know super genius consultant guy had worked with this AOL team years ago when they did the Live Eight video and won an Emmy for streaming all that stuff, you know, all over the planet. And then a few years later, worked with the Hulu team when they were building all their stuff. And then a few years after that, worked with, um, I think it was like Roku or, or one of these things, right? And he told me, he said, like, the biggest thing is, like, everything you knew doing the AOL stuff, none of it mattered when Hulu came along. And everything you knew doing Hulu, doing the Hulu or YouTube years, like, none of that mattered when you did the Roku stuff, right? It just all changes. It's absolutely right. So the trick is to kind of stay ahead of all of that. And um, I forget your question, but this is, this is, a, lot of, this is a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Um, well, I, I think there's a there's a well there should be a line you can find between building a really smart API that isn't dependent on the code, so you can nuke the system without breaking all the plugins because the plugins are are dealing with an API layer mm-hmm. that doesn't have to change because you planned it out really well from the beginning. I think loose that loose is. Couple. I think that is feasible. Like planning your code to scale or or to to remain pertinent over years 
I, I don't think it's possible. But it's, being it's, able it's to funny. back yeah. up an API. Well, and that, that's the modern way to do it, right? Loosely coupled, you know, a service-oriented architecture, right? Islands of stuff talking to each other so you can upgrade them independently. I mean, there's still going to be hell there. But uh, it's funny, when we did the CrowdFusion stuff, we actually were doing a PHP framework that was based on a uh, the JavaScript uh, Spring framework. So we called our Sprung. And... But it was like it was like it was as good as Spring. It was like these Java guys slumming in PHP, doing cool object-oriented stuff. And so compared, if you look at our stuff compared to probably like a WordPress, you know, especially a WordPress plugin off the street. I mean, ours was like you know PhD genius, you know, developers compared to this, this spaghetti code from script people or maybe former artists, kind of like me. I'm not a coder, um, and it's it, it's really cool. But again, at some point that runs out, and you got a like act, you know dependency injection and. Uh, a version of control container like that's cool and then three years later they just realize there's something new out there and you were all wrong and you got to nuke it again so i don't know are uh, apis a, i mean sounds right are you a former artist uh oh so in uh if, if you asked me when i was a kid or even even through high school what i wanted to be when i grew up it was comic book artist absolutely drawing superheroes and fights and you know aliens and stuff and people i love drawing people and so uh that was what i was going to be and I, I started off some some talks where i actually you know explain like Without a doubt, that's what I was going to be, and it totally didn't happen. And uh, then I kind of go into why it didn't happen and stuff. So, well, I, that's probably a whole other show, but uh, sure. yeah, I'd be curious about that. Um, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break, and then uh, we'll talk about some uh, religious startup views. So, our first sponsor today is Shopify. Shopify is a hosted e-commerce solution that allows you to set up and run your own online store in minutes. Pick a template, add your products, pick your payment processor from PayPal to Stripe to Authorize.net and ship your stuff with just a few clicks. With Shopify, it's easy to sell online and there's no software to download, host, upgrade, or maintain. Pick from over 100 professionally designed e-commerce templates or create your own with full control over the HTML and CSS. There are no bandwidth limits and no need to worry about scaling when your store becomes popular. And every Shopify store is level one PCI DSS compliant and totally secure. Shopify has just announced their Shopify POS. It's an iPad application that lets you sell your Shopify store's products in a physical retail setting. It's quick and easy. Browse your store's catalog, pick a customer's product, swipe their credit card, and print their receipt or just send it through the email. The emails. Email? Send it through email. Uh, you can automatically sync products and orders, and there's only one dashboard to manage all of your retail and online stores. So get the Shopify POS hardware, which includes a credit card reader, cash drawer, iPad stand, and a receipt printer. And uh, if you order online, shipping is free. Visit shopify.com slash 5 by 5 and you'll get three months for free. Check them out today. All you need is something to sell. So, Brian... You used a uh, term in the pre-show chat, uh, startup religions. Tell me, tell me what's a startup religion? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, the, the, I've talked to some people recently and was, it, it's funny, over time, you know, you, you read these great books, right? The Lean Startup or Crossing the Chasm or The Innovator's Dilemma. And you start kind of piecing things together. And so I was advising a company like two or three, four years ago, probably three or four years ago. And, and I did a good job because they got acquired and they made a lot of money and that was all awesome. But I was asking the, the, the woman who was running it, I said like, so what's yours? Like, what, what are you basing? Like, what's your strategy all based on? You know, which one of these, you know, nifty startup religions that are out there? And, you know, some people are high on agile, some people are high on this and that. And she's like, well, none. 
I was like, no, 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 there's got to be one. Like, was it the, the like product market fit blog post by Mark Andreessen? Like, what's your thing, right? Like, everybody's got these things. And she's like, I don't know. I just kind of read stuff and kind of merge it all together. And I was so annoyed she didn't answer, like, which one was hers. And I couldn't compare, like, what I liked versus what she liked. And I'm like, that just sucks. And so, um, so I thought about it. And I thought about, you know, it, maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe I'm, like, looking for some, you know, some some path, some some thing to tell me, you know, what to do or how to act as a CEO. And maybe I'm actually like revealing a weakness of mine as I'm asking her about, you know, what it is she does. And so I, so I thought about this, um, this comic book and it was something I read in high school. So it's six or 700 years ago. And, um, it was this really interesting thing. There was a, it was like a monk in a boat and green arrow and like this woman who's like an assassin, they're in the boat and they're riding across some river. And green arrow is asking like, so what is, what is he, what is he doing? She's like, he's praying or, you know, meditating. And he's like, well, wow, that's neat. What, what religion is he? And she's like, you've never heard of it. It's, it's, it's a religion of one. And he's like, a religion of one? Like, that's, that's really wacky. Like, and, and her answer was, actually, there's, there is no other kind. And I'm like, I've never forgotten that page, right? That scene, the, the, the dialogue, right? There is no other kind. If you think about it, you know, two people in the same, you know, actual religion or that believe the same thing still have slightly different beliefs, right? You have your own your own take on it. So, so I did a talk once about like startup religions and the religion of one and how I realized like crud, I guess you kind of merge the things together and like make your own thing that you follow and you pick and choose because, you know, everybody's, you know, some religion that has 10 commandments and I break two of them, you break three of them, right? It's, it, you still pick and choose, right? There is no religion for everybody. There's religion of one. So, so just been kind of fascinated by what people use and what, what their methods are and what they're seeking and, and, and I've kind of gotten to a point where, uh, you know, I've bought so many books on Kindle that are these like CEO self-help books, I, I call them, right? All these great business books and strategy books. And I'm, and I'm kind of like, I don't even really want to read them now because I'm kind of sick of folding things in. I think I've got it, right? I think I'm cured and I think I'm moving on and I've, I've got my plan and my way of doing things. And it's probably just based on, like she said, all the stuff you read and soak up and really smart people you surround yourself with. So. That's my religion, my startup religion thing. So I guess I think there's a certain personality that is attracted to the idea of a startup religion or religion in general. Mm -hmm. Whereas myself, I, I, I have never and probably will never read any of these books because I just want to code. Like I just mm -hmm. want to create things. Um, and this is the reason why I don't have a startup or, or a lot of money uh, to speak of. But I, do you think there's a, a divide between the, you know, the future CEO and the w even the most driven coder? Uh, in, in what way? Like, like who 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 subscribes to these religions? Like, what is the personality type that that picks and and reads all of these books and and defines their their religion of one? Mm -hmm. Because not everybody's going to do that. Yeah. Okay. So I see what you mean. There are, well, it's, it's weird because it's, it's hard to say now. I think 10 years ago, there was a very small percentage of people who would list entrepreneur as what they're going to be, right? Like, what are you going to be? Right. I'm going to run my own business, right? And I think people, like, I kind of fell into it. You know, it just made sense. It wasn't that I'm, you know, unhirable or I can't work for anybody else. And, you know, like that kind of thing. It wasn't that I'm that. And I think there's plenty of those people. Um, it was more, uh, I kind of fell into it. So, but now, you know, you know, we, we, um, so my friend Jason had this thing called, uh, the open angel forum and it was, it started in, 
this really, really wealthy guy's uh, backyard in L.A. And what they did was they – I forget what the comparable thing was that he was trying to kill. It was like – it wasn't the demo conference. There, there was some um, there was some like angel group that was charging entrepreneurs like hundreds or thousands of dollars to pitch you know, angels, right, to get their, to get their yeah. stuff. And he's like, well, that's stupid because startups have no money. And then you're pitching a guy, but the people pitching are like actually telling the people in the audience, I'm dumb enough to pay 1200 bucks to stand here for five minutes to pitch you. Like, that's horrible, right? I wouldn't invest in that guy, right? It's like you've just disqualified yourself. So, so his idea was we'll get all these angels together. We'll get a couple of sponsors. We'll just stand around in a backyard, and they get up there, and you know, six entrepreneurs pitch for six minutes each. And you know, the beer in their hand, backyard barbecue kind of thing, and we'll see what happens. And so it kind of grew to this multi-city thing, and we were doing them in uh, – in New York, and uh, they're 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 very interesting. But all of a sudden, we kind of ran into this weird problem. To answer your question, which was, we no longer could find six uh, early startups that all the you know twenty or you know so angels that we were going to have in the audience hadn't already seen and either invested in or passed on. So we watched this thing go from in the span in the span of space of about twelve months, maybe eighteen months from. You know, we would find some things that they hadn't seen. We'd put together a little event. They'd like it. They'd meet somebody. They'd invest in them. Some really cool things came out of those days. Food 52, Contently. Contently is a big, big company that came out of that. There's a, there's a few others that have gone on to do really well. You know, it's, it's kind of neat to see the, the classes that came through there. But when we stopped doing it, we couldn't find six companies to get in front of these people because there was an explosion. After Y Combinator, they were like, 12 other accelerators and camps and the matter VC thing and like all these places for people to go. So it was no longer, it's kind of like the, the events were 2002 versus now, you know, it used to be, there was, you know, whatever, twice a year, Y Combinator classes. And like, that was it. If you don't get into that, like, that's it. Then it was like, they're everywhere. And so all of a sudden your whole summer and your whole spring, winter, fall are just packed with these classes and classes and classes. And so everybody has a startup and it's just, it's absolutely bonkers. And then there's, and, you know, and I think actually somewhere in the middle of that, the social network came out. And watching that movie, everybody was like, damn, I'm going to drop out of Harvard. Yeah, I'm not in Harvard. But I'm going to drop out of Harvard. I'm going to start my own thing. And I'm going to f*** over all my friends. And I'm going to make a billion dollars, right? Like that's, that's the path. That's how you do it. And it's so funny because, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg hated the idea of the movie came in, coming out, right? Um, when they advertised the movie, they couldn't advertise it on Facebook. It was banned advertising <laughs> on Facebook. They couldn't call it Facebook. But – when we, we were part of a MySpace relaunch, so our, our software, the CrowdFusion, was being used by MySpace, and they were plastered with ads for the social network because they could totally advertise on MySpace. So it came out, but it made him a, like a hero. Like the fact that he was such a jerk in that, now everybody wanted to be that, and his like his you know fame was raised a level by that movie. And so you look at things like Shark Tank is I've heard, but it may have actually been Mark Cuban saying it, so I'm not sure. But I've heard that like it's the number one show that families watch together in America right now. Not The Voice, not American Idol, not all these other things, but it's like people get together and they watch this. So now it's not just people in Palo Alto and people in New York and maybe Boston and a few other cities where people talk about startups and valuations and dilution and, uh, you know, the whole, you know, it's all back again, the option pools and all that stuff. But in Ohio and in Alaska and in Maine, they're like startups and valuations and I'll sell you this piece for this percent. And that Shark Tank phenomenon, that whole thing, like the startup culture, it's just off the charts now. It's completely crazy. So um, it's, it's just a big change between um, what it used to be and what it is. And so now I, I don't even know what to make of it. 
you know, in terms of what people follow or what they're doing. And it's hard to kind of tell who was maybe born for this and who saw the social network too many times and thinks they're now, and, 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 and I, we talked about this before the show. I don't want to call myself a serial entrepreneur because I just sound like a jerk, you know, when I say that, but I mean, I've started a lot of companies in a row that I ran that I got funding for or whatever and sold some and, you know, you know, merged some and I've done all that stuff, but man, serial entrepreneur just sounds like such a, such a jerk. It's like social media, you know, manager or whatever. It's like a, <laughs> a you know, or social media guru or a ninja, like rock star. Ah, I love it when I get follows from people who call themselves like web marketing gurus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, if, if, if Twitter allowed me to deny followers, mm-hmm. it would probably be from social gurus. Right. Um, but yeah, I think, I think basically there's a, an abundance of resources now that didn't exist before. And mm-hmm. it, I think it would be interesting to take like a survey of the startups that actually became successful, like mainstream institutions mm-hmm. and see what their startup religion was and see which ones actually, uh, actually have like staying power. Obviously, everybody's going to customize to you know, they're going to take multiple input sources to develop their religion, but it would be really interesting to see what the overlaps were between the most successful startups. Right. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you the bad thing, which I think happens too often is, and I'm, you know, you, you kind of fall in love with these books and you fall out of the, fall out of love with these books. And that's the part where I'm right now. But a lot of them, you know, when they talk about uh, a big book, like good to great was one of the big ones. And they profile these like 20 companies and they talk about why they're on top. Wait until 10 years after that book is published and all the ones that declared winners are out of business and all the ones that declared losers are back. Same thing in the innovator's dilemma. There was a big thing recently where somebody was slamming this, you know, roughly 10 year old book. I'm not sure how many years, but you know, on some of the people he declared winners are gone and some of the people he declared losers are the biggest people in their industry. And then there's arguments over whether you're right. And what that comes from is the, they pick these case studies and they choose these things. And so, so maybe Facebook gets big and somebody says, ah, here's how he did it. This must be the way everybody should do it. But it's probably not the way anybody should do it. And it's kind of like that, that concept in, uh, in the military of like fighting last year's war. Like the fact that we're scanning for shoe bombs <laughs> means me, you, know, you know what I mean? Like that would have worked if we went back in time, you know, eight years before the guy did it six years ago, then we would have caught that. But like to do that, like they move on, the things change, the, the, you know, the, the, the goal and the target changes and the methods change and the universe adapts. And so, I don't know, there's, there's no real answer there. Um, you, you mentioned the word abundance. Can we talk about that for a second? We, we can. Oh, good. Cool. So, uh, so there's this abundance of startup camps. There's all this stuff. Everybody, there's, you know, the barriers to entry to being an entrepreneur are now zero. You just tell everybody around you, you stand up at your cubicle and you're like, guys, I'm an entrepreneur. And it's like, it's done. And you get into some, you go on, you make an angelist profile, right? And you're in the game. You know, you're, you just go. Um, back to Meet the Makers, that was one of the big driving themes in there was that there are just these waves of equalizing technology and these things come along. And so in the early days, like the theme of Meet the Makers was creative people in a technical world. And my own personal, like looking back on what I've done, like I'm a guy who builds software that makes creative people more powerful, right? I'm probably, I want to be a comic book artist, but I'm never going to be that. So I'll make great software that makes creative people more, you know, better at their jobs or, you know, like CMSs, right? Like I can do all this stuff. So, so this, this idea of equalizing technologies, I've watched this for years. And so early on, you know, the web happens, everybody has a domain name. You, you and me both have a domain name and so does the New York times. Now we're all equal, right? So we're kind of like, we're out there competing. This is great. 
and then they go and they make it unequal. They build a big data center. They spend millions of dollars on servers. Now we're kind of screwed. We can't you know, compete with them. And then the cloud comes along. And now I pull out my credit card. And for like $4, I have 30,000 servers. Now we're equal again, right? And so you have these crazy waves of these equalizations happen. Some people rise above it. And they're kind of the power redistributes. And then it equalizes again. In, in the middle of those two waves, there was blog software. Like it used to be really, really, really hard to blog. You'd have to install, you have to know Perl, you have to know, you know, some Linux or something, make a server, you know, all this crazy stuff. And then all of a sudden it was, you just walk up to a website with an email address, you just start typing and you're blogging, right? There's no more rebooting and, you know, doing CSS or any of these crazy things. And so one of the things that fascinates me the most is these just waves of equalizing technology. And so one of my favorite talks ever, if I had to pick one, was one I gave called An Abundance of Tools and an Absence of Craft. And it was about just that, which is everybody's got a supercomputer in their hands. Everybody has an iPhone, Samsung device, iPad, you know, more computing power than the astronauts had or whatever the, the thing is. And so when we all basically have superpowers, like how do you rise above that and do something that's legendary, something that people remember forever, and, you know, compete against a pretty level playing field, you know? I think that's fascinating. So how does, once the, once the playing field is leveled, and, and people can create without craft. What sets apart, what, what, what is the, uh, I don't, I don't want to say formula. Yeah. I want to say what is, what, what sets apart the winners in that game at that point? Wow. Okay, good. So, and I just made a note here about, uh, I got one of my three things I'm going to talk to you about. <laughs> that I have to do for your show. So, um, so here's, you know, a lot of movies have kind of been speaking to me over the years. And in the movie, somewhere in the middle of the movie, I hear this voice that goes, do meet the makers again. And it's never, they don't actually say that with words, but there's some scene that happens that kind of taps into that equalizing technologies. How do you rise above? How do you be legendary, right? How do you, how do you creatively rise above the stuff? And so I'll tell you a couple of them. Um, one is, um, well, actually, there's a piece of software a long time ago called, uh, it was called KPT Bryce. It was this like 3D rendering software. Really cool stuff. I remember stuff. that, yeah. It, it was a nifty thing. And so you basically make these otherworldly landscapes with like water and rock formations and sunsets and three suns in the sky or whatever you want to do. And when I saw that, I thought, well, this is really weird because this you're kind of making what looks like a Yes album cover, these old 70s <laughs> album covers. And there was a guy that did that, right? So I started thinking about that guy. And I, and this is the first time I ever really thought about this equalizing technology thing. I said, this, this kind of sucks because for years... He goes into the studio and he like hands in this cover and they pay him a lot of money. And that's his job. Roger Dean makes Yes album covers. Now there's like a $30 piece of software where you and me and everybody else on the planet and my dog can make Yes album covers. What does that guy do for a living now? And so it, it's, it's an interesting question and I do have some answers to it on how you kind of you know rise above all that. But there's, there's other movies, Sound City and this, this recent one, Tim's Vermeer, even the Pixar movie, The Incredibles, all touch on themes that are about like in Sound City, everybody has Pro Tools. You right. can fix every every drum beat, everything. It's all like amazing. How do you rise above that? And the answer is like four guys in a garage, three guys in a garage. You know, getting it, back with, to basics with, and having yeah, skills with an, with an right? eight track tape recorder. And... Yeah, exactly. It's just crazy. I mean, all the all the biggest songs these days for years now have been written by one guy in Sweden, Max Martin. Right? He's <laughs> all, if, yeah. if you look at his Wikipedia page, it's everything. Yep. And well, how did he do that? Well, he took music classes all his life and they teach it in the schools and like he's got good, you know, craft. It's the craft. It's not the tools. It's the craft. And so he, he rises above that. And I think that's, that's a fascinating thing. Um, okay. I'll tell you how 
I've done it through my career. And then I'll tell you something that I've seen interesting that, that's interesting recently that maybe people don't walk up to it and think this answers your question, but I think it answers your question. So the way I've done it is to cheat and play to your strengths. So if I'm competing with somebody who's creative, I'm not going to be better than them. If they spend 10 hours a day in Photoshop all year long at their day job, and I spend four hours in Photoshop every other month, you know, I'm not going to beat them at Photoshop, but I'm going to beat them with technology. I'm better at coding. I'm better at, you know, stuff with some printer thing or thinking of something in layers or there's something out there technically that I will, I will use to beat them. And then if I'm working against somebody who's, who's, um, and I've just seen this over my career working, uh, competing against somebody who is technical and my God, any, you know, most people can code better than me if they, if they code for a living by definition, they code better than I do, right? They're better coders, but they won't design an interface that kind of reads your mind, that thinks about the user, that thinks about the experience and the flow and the whatever. So I've learned like, I just jump to the other side of the brain when I'm competing against people who are all on that other side of the brain. So I think one of the answers is to kind of do the unexpected, to um, to bring your other strengths to bear in the situation where you're competing. And the one thing I've seen recently, you can put this on the list now, is this thing called calm.com, C-A-L-M. Uh, you may have not seen it. Um, if you don't have anger issues, you may not need to uh, <laughs> check it out. But it, it's, it's a relaxation website. And so so what it is is you go up to calm.com and it's like it's it's a relaxation website. They sell you like meditation stuff and and mindfulness, right? And they have all these really cool things. A friend of mine, actually several friends of mine, are happen to be investors in it. You know, independently, I thought that was a really neat neat thing, and so I checked them out. And so you would think you go to the website; and it's one of those one page websites. Talks about the stuff, sells you products. Here's the team. Here's our investors, right? But they don't do that. You show up at the website, and it is just there's like an ocean and a sun setting on it, and it's beautiful. And there's some little bit of music playing and you choose how many minutes do you want to have a, a, a session and it just goes and you just, it, and it tells you like, put on headphones, turn off your phone, like let's go and do, and you just like step into this other world. And I think that's so clever that the guy who he's, this is a neat guy from, uh, from the UK that the guy who does this, you know, he, he, he thought, you know, what, is, what are people expecting? And they're expecting a certain kind of website and a, you know, and a Shopify cart. And a, by the way, Shopify has an amazing API. And I, and I love them. So shout out back to Shopify there. Um, so it, you expect this kind of this kind of like the system, this Amazon thing, or go download my app, or pay me, put in your credit card. And it's not. It's like we're here to help close down the, the your other stuff, and let's just you know have some me time. And it's really cool. So I'm, I'm a big fan of people doing the unexpected, and I think that's maybe one of the best ways to kind of separate yourself when there's all this equalizing technology. Just do the unexpected. You know, I think the the, the app Yo. I mean, it's, it's really kind of, you know, it's, it's a weird thing. It's a funny thing. And it's just this, this one little thing and you're doing the unexpected being overly simple when other people are being overly complicated. So was that one of your top tragic. picks? Was that two of your top you know, picks? You know, so I, I would throw yo in there cause I don't actually, I don't actually know how many other, I mean, I, I honestly, I would just fill it all with those, you know, sound city and, uh, and Tim's, Tim's Vermeer. Actually people got to go see Tim's Vermeer. Um, have you seen Tim's Vermeer? Do you know I have not. I, I don't. Okay, so there's a movie called Tim's Vermeer, and so Vermeer was a famous painter 350 years ago. Yeah, he was a Dutch right. Dutch master, yeah. and his stuff looks like photographs. And they said that it looked like the guy painted with light. Oh, some I know guy, what you're talking about paints. now, because they like it was this guy that discovered how Vermeer did his paintings. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Right. So, so, so I'm this guy who's kind of obsessed about like creativity versus technology, and maybe one is in one side of your brain, one's inside of the other, and you switch back and forth, and the mind-blowing thing in this movie, and this doesn't reveal anything, this, this guy, Tim Jennison, 
made this movie and he's good friends with uh, Penn and Teller. And so uh, Penn actually um, narrates the thing and you see them going with him on this journey. And he's, he's done different things. Like he built um, the TriCaster, right? That's used in studios everywhere. And he built um, some 3D software that like TV shows have used, a video toaster, I think is one of them and all this stuff, right? So he's like super guy in terms of, oh, you know, ray tracing, light, 3D, like he understands how visual art and, and technology work and broadcast tools and things like that. So he had heard that there might be this thing called a camera obscura that Vermeer used way back when, and nobody knows how Vermeer accomplished what he accomplished. And if you compare Vermeer's painting side by side with one of his contemporaries, the contemporaries look like, you know, Egyptian art, like flat people, kind of not that not that special. And his look like a photograph. So the uh, the answers are he had a like weird brain tumor that made him this <laughs> amazing artist, but it wasn't that right because your your eye actually throws away a lot of data, and the stuff he did could not have been done. So he goes and he figures out how a camera obscura would have worked, and the camera obscura very simply is. Um, a smaller room inside a room with a circular hole in it and a lens in that hole. And then what happens is the outside light goes through that and it's actually focused onto a wall inside that smaller room. And he showed how if this was the way that they think maybe he was cheating to do this, if you paint on top of that light, you actually can't paint on top of it. Because if you paint blue on top of blue, it gets dark blue. So you can't, you can trace, you can do an outline and then go back in and paint. So you'll get the, the, the sketch down right. But you can't actually do the colors because the only color you can paint underneath blue light that makes it the right color blue is white. Right. So if you paint the whole thing white, boom, you're done. Paint it any <laughs> other color and you're screwed, right? So you can't do this. So he goes through any, this whole process and this device and that device, and maybe, okay, I'll blow out the room, I'll make a thing, a lens, and he finally kind of figures out a way and the way that, the way that he you know, theorizes this guy must have worked, which by the end of the movie you're sold. This is, this is definitely how he worked. It's almost like uh, you're like, uh, almost like, not by paint by numbers, but you're kind of you realize like you don't, you just have to match up these colors next to a mirror and you just have to eyeball these two things and kind of go back and forth and make it darker until it works or make it lighter until it works. The whole stupid thing is he basically makes his own Vermeer painting. He recreates a Vermeer. So it's Tim's Vermeer, Tim Jennison's Vermeer. Right. And of this room and this thing, and it may actually look even better than a Vermeer because it's not 350 years old. And he uses all the, like the paint equipment and the stuff the guy would have had in, in back in the day. And at the end, he has his own Vermeer, and he's done it, and you're convinced this is how it worked. And here's the crazy thing. He just proved that one of maybe the top ten artists in the history of our planet, the top ten creative, beautiful guys, may not have been able to draw or paint any better than my my dog or my six-year-old. He was actually probably the world's most horrible artist, but a hacker, <laughs> a genius at technology. He went and he gamed the system, and he got his name into the, the Hall of Fame record books – by doing this, these amazing paintings that were off the charts better than anybody. So, you know, there are all these questions around like performance enhancing drugs, what counts as cheating, when do you step over the line? That guy cheated. He, he was not an artist. He was not like a master. Like he didn't draw and he probably didn't paint. He may have sucked at both, but he kind of fooled the world. And d- does that make him a better artist? Should he be one of the best artists ever? His work is amazing, but it was a hack. He was a hacker. And so where's that? Is there a distinction between one of the, the best artists ever sucked at the creative skills and was amazing at the technical skills. I gotta and, say, I'm ex- you know, it's, it's mind blowing. It is. I'm excited for the day when, uh, you know, like when, when you have paraplegics, I think this happened during the Olympics and they had, uh, they had prosthetic limbs mm-hmm. and they were disqualified from competition. Right. To me, that is the ultimate sports hack. 
prosthetic limbs that outperform human bodies. It is, yeah. And well, uh, well, so, I'm excited yeah. about that. I want I want to watch the World Cup with a bunch of like huh. people with prosthetic. Well, there there was a, a failed Hugh Jackman movie about that where they're all in the ring with like stuff on and beating each other with metal suits. Um, I saw that. No, was it uh, failed? Is that a failure? I, I think it was. It wasn't. You know, it wasn't Wolverine. Um, <laughs> Mark, Mark Mark Cuban wrote a great thing probably within the last six months about performance enhancing drugs, and he just said like. The people, the athletes, right? They watch what goes in their bodies. It's a machine. They're like, they know how many milligrams of this versus that and what things, you know, make them perform versus not. And so he basically said like, let's just declare open season. Let them take anything they want. Because, you know, caffeine was used in like the 40s and then in the 60s in baseball, they outlawed it. And then it's it's okay again, but not too much. And then testosterone is outlawed, but but only if, you, if you're recovering from this, then you can have it. And so it's just completely almost arbitrary because we have all these Olympic sports where people will go in a two-hour and 25-minute race and four guys will finish within milliseconds of each other. That's insane. So you've you know, optimized all these bodies for this one activity and there's that close. And then like the guy who gets a better wind-resistant suit now beats them by 10 seconds or a minute or something, right? Those things are crazy. I think they're fascinating. I don't know, I don't know if I believe his argument that you should just like let it go and like have all these like – steroid freaks in every sport but people are doing it anyway and people are going up to the line and then crossing it and then going back so it's 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 a big thing to debate I and mean, you know it's a whole other show given that professional football players are already willing to accept uh permanent brain injury as par for the sport mm-hmm. i think like completely lifting bans on known on drugs that are known to be harmful would ultimately kill sports in general sure. I think because everyone would do whatever it took. Right. There's not a lot of uh, self-control in that area. But I'm going to take our next sponsor break. And then we're going to do our top three picks for real. And if you already used one up, you know, we can, we'll we'll figure it out. I'm ready. Have you ever used Text Expander? Uh, I know of it. I haven't used it. Uh, You're you're one of the few. Uh, you know, I got to tell you, uh, well, I'm going to put a pick in there then that uh, I wasn't going to do before, which is a kind of a silly pick, but I'm sure nobody else picked it. So go for it. Okay. Oh. Well, Taxi Spender is one of my personal favorite productivity applications. It is something I, I, I've i been using it this entire show, actually, to fill in uh, show notes. But uh, it saves you time and effort by expanding short abbreviations into frequently used text and even pictures. And it, it includes fill-ins. Uh, to customize your common responses with things like uh, like it'll pop up a little field when you trigger your your uh, your snippet, and you can fill in like a, a customized name or pick from a series of options and define what gets filled in after that. Um, so you can save time and effort, whether it's simple email signatures or several paragraphs of a standard response. You'll love how easy it is to use Text Expander to avoid typing the same thing over and over. You can make customized boilerplate replies fast and easy using fill-ins. Use the built-in groups for HTML, CSS, autocorrect, accented words, and symbols, and insert the current date and time in any format you prefer. It can even do date math. Ah, create snippets from Apple scripts and shell scripts for powerful integrations, which is pretty much my favorite thing to do with Text Expander. Um, sync snippets via Dropbox and use them on multiple devices with Text Expander Touch on iOS. Text Expander is available from Smile for $34.95 and a free demo, demo download is available at smilesoftware.com slash Text Expander. 
And then Text Expander Touch is available on the App Store for $4.95. And a list of supported apps can be found at smilesoftware.com slash apps. So uh, my honest recommendation, even to you, Brian, is if you use a Mac and you're not using Text Expander, give it a shot. Try the free trial. Yeah, so let's. Uh, I'll, I'm not going to make that one of my picks. I'm going to tell you the pick that I currently use, and I will soon be replacing it with Text Expander. How about that? All right. So top okay, three picks time. What's your first yeah, top pick? You know, it's really weird just looking down the list. I mean, I had goofy answers. But one of my favorite little productivity hacks is the text shortcuts on your phone, right, on your iPhone. So the iOS keyboard text shortcut. So I have things like, you know, when you go to fill in an email address for an email, it always picks like the old one at the guy's last job or some right, person. Right. You know, it's like the wrong thing. It's a pain. And you can't like force it to use the right one. So I just have like, you know, BCF is like, this one and you know BAC is this one. So all these things expand and uh, they're a giant, giant, giant time saver. And then I realized like I'm doing replies all the time, right? Back to Texas Panda, right? And I'm constantly like somebody's like, well, I'll call you. Just get send me your send me your phone number. I'm like, so now PPP, phone, 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 right? Like that's my phone number. It just auto fills in my phone number. And those are a lifesaver. And then I realized, I think it was iOS seven, where all of a sudden um, on the iPad, like the shortcuts were already there. I thought it was the coolest thing. Like, oh, my devices are all sharing my shortcuts. I didn't have to go retype them this time, whatever that iOS version was. So that changed my life. But they don't share with my Mac until probably, you know, the next version of the Mac. So um, so I'll be checking out Text Expander because that just like, it just saves me, it feels like it saves me hours a year to type a couple letters and get the thing I need. Um, it's such a simple thing, but it's a big deal. Uh, there's no reason you should be, you know, like I did it to my wife's uh, phone and iPad. Like I put her stuff in there like, just type, you know, BM for my email address and NM for her email address, and it's like done. It's so, weird that it's weird that those uh, shortcuts from iOS do sync with some Mac apps, like Messages, for example. Mm. Like they'll just show I, up I, in I Messages. I've seen it, right? But it doesn't do it everywhere, right? Right. It's just it's it's kind of pick and choose. It's it's weird, but yeah, that is definitely and and the thing Text Expander doesn't work in the native Mac apps. Or Apple okay. apps, yep. and it would it would be my uh, my dream come true if my text expander, expander snippets just started working in mail for me. Yeah, but they don't. Yeah. But there like are the mail G- apps Gmail that app? do. What's like that? The Gmail app, like the Gmail app, would it work in that? I don't think so. I don't think Gmail okay. has integrated their API. Like a developer has to specifically okay. integrate text expander. Uh, so some, you have to check that that uh, apps page to find out what has included it. Cool. I will and, be checking that. And Apple keeps making it more and more difficult for them. No, they just made it easier, man. They're your friend. They're developers' friends. They opened it up. There's going to be swipe keyboards and this and in, that. In iOS 8, <laughs> things things may be different. May, uh, they I may be. So. Uh, and the history, I mean, I've, I've been using Apple products since the like late 80s, mid 80s. Um, like, like, you know, early Macs and things before the Mac, the Lisa and apples and all that stuff. And, uh, and I've just watched over the years, like there was a guy who made, um, you know, the clock that's in your, in your menu bar, right? Like on a Mac, it's just there. Well, it used to not be there. So system six, there was no, there was nothing there. You had a shareware thing called super clock. And there was a guy who was kind of famous for making super clock and it was super popular. And then somewhere around like system seven, five, they just decided that's a great idea. We're just going to stick that in there. And so you, you know, people complain about them kind of. You know, the level app, like all those level apps are wiped out when the phone just has its own level app now and the compass thing. Like they, 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 this whole thing where they kind of screw over developers, it's been happening for like 30 years, right? A long time. So anyway, the, 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 we'll see what happens. Right on. 
All right. So my first pick this week is the Belkin Your Type Wireless Keypad. I have uh, I, I've fallen in love with my Bluetooth aluminum keyboard. It's I have tried every keyboard imaginable, and I keep coming back to this one, but it lacks the the number pad from the full size aluminum keyboard. Mm-hmm. And this Belkin little Bluetooth thing that's about exactly the same form factor as the wireless uh, trackpad. It uh, it adds a full key number pad and the page up, page down, and the 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 official enter key, which you can get with function return. But having it just there on my right pinky, with a little uh, hand movement, is nobody cares about it except for me because I assign different shortcuts to return and enter, mm. so they behave right. differently. Uh, so it's one of those things that. If you're used to having the trackpad, if you're used to having like a hard key for enter and page up, page down, it's awesome. I should I should note that I've actually been using um, Key Remap for MacBook to make it so that if I hit both my up arrow key and my red arrow key at the same time, it's home. And down arrow key and right arrow key at the same time, it's end. And then on the other side, page up, page down. And that's actually become second nature for me. But having this keypad has been, I have missed my number pad. And it's, so, it's 50 bucks. It's not cheap. It's, it's, yeah, it's not. But it's, it sounds useful. I mean, it's funny. Um, I'll tell you who actually does care about, like, the right shift from the left shift, like, and wanting it to be different, is my kids playing Minecraft. They map all those keys, and right sure. shift is something different from left shift. And I can see hard enter versus, like, soft return is a different thing. So it's kind of funny. Yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not into Minecraft, but I am really into keyboard shortcuts, so I fully understand. <laughs> That's great. You guys could get together and talk about that. <laughs> All right. So what's your second pick? Man, I, well, first, I just want to say, like, I, I can't believe, like, I'm so glad I only have to pick three ever, right? Unless you invite me back on the show. But I, three three every time you do the show, like, that, that's a lot of work for you. I do it every um, week. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. It's, you know, <laughs> what power to you, man. So uh, uh, the one I mentioned before, com.com, so C-A-L-M com.com i just think it's a new thing it's neat my friends have invested in it you know i haven't i'm not pitching something i i own a piece of um but i just like what they're doing and i just i i use you know i, I use it as an example and i will make people pull it up on their on their browsers like pull it up look that's not what you're expecting and i just think that that's really cool i, I uh you know I, I like and then i use that as like remember do the unexpected like they did so i think um i'm kind of fascinated with them recently I uh, I loaded that up the first time you mentioned it, and I'm I'm excited to try it after this podcast. Actually, just because, cool. like, you instantly have a timer button, and you can set ten minutes and just go. Yeah, and a woman's talking to you in a soothing voice and telling you to like now breathe this way and count this way, and it's it's just like, and and they don't. There's no now pay us. It's just like you get value immediately the second you load it. It's what cool. is the business model here? Uh, they, they have more planned and I probably know more than I should cause I've, I've met the founder and stuff and I know, I know investors, but like they, you know, they're going to sell things and add ons and, you know, extra purchases and have, I don't know what, you know, you know, all the standard gear. I mean, they'll take over the world with like relaxation spas and coaches and stuff. And I don't know. I mean, it, there's, you know, the mindfulness movement is massive right now. Like, it is. It's one it of those is. big things out there. And so I think they're just looking at like, how do we be a brand that's in that, that is like. Calm, calm. The word calm, four-letter word, domain name. It's synonymous with like all the relaxation and mindfulness things. So, you know, they'll do something. Uh, they'll do more than you can see, and it's going to be amazing. And my friends will make a lot of money, and I'll have them pay for dinner. 
There you go. Yeah. All right. So let's see. My second pick is Curio 9. Do you use Curio at all? Have you ever seen Curio? I've never heard of it. I was I can't even I don't even want to guess at what it is. It's a, it's a brainstorming application that lets it's a project management application that mm-hmm. lets you create these free form idea spaces and then drop in things like mind maps, index cards, uh, file links, contacts, text fields, and and you can kind of arrange them however you want to, create magnetic uh, links between them, and then uh, just build projects you can add due dates and and start dates and it'll build like a uh to-do list for you in the sidebar as you build you can add like a, a due date to a mind map item and it'll show up as a, a task in your sidebar like it's just it's brilliant i i've been exploring it for years and feel like i've never touched everything it can do but curio 9 just came out today and uh it adds just an insane number of new things and a complete visual overhaul of the interface. Um, adds new collection types. You can have like pinboard collections and album collections. It can mirror your project as you work to PDF formats so other people can keep up with you. And it's, it, there are, they list 14 reasons to upgrade to Curio 9, and every one of them is on its own. If you're a current user, uh, the upgrade is fifty dollars. Uh, new users, uh, uh, Curio is a hundred dollars, and uh, it, it's it's one of my favorite applications, uh, mostly because it's just infinitely. It's like Scrivener. Have you ever used Scrivener? I, I have. Yes, I've tried that out. It's yeah. like Scrivener in that you never feel like you've completely harnessed all of its power, which for me is exciting. I find that I find that scintillating. Yeah, so I can tell you right off the bat, I, I would try it, and then I'd stop using it. And I'll, I'll tell you why. I'm a bit of a to-do list hoarder kind of person. <laughs> I have this, uh, you know, and, and the only way you can escape that, so kind of like if you, if you fill a room with, like, clutter and crap everywhere, and then you're like, oh, I'll just take my laptop and go sit at the dining room table. And then, you're like, you screw that room up, and then you're like, I'll just go sit on the deck. Or I'll go to Starbucks now, right? And you kind of try to, like, escape that. I've had text lists, you know, text, text document with to-do list, and then it was like, okay, I'll use Evernote, because then that can kind of, like, enter it from my phone and all this stuff. And then I had like one really, and then that kind of just, it all of a sudden it's cluttered. It's no longer like the seven things you put in right now. It's just crazy. And the last thing I've been doing, and this is not going to be on my picks, but I, I considered it one of my picks was, uh, I've been doing personal scrum in Asana and that's great until like you miss a few days and it kind of piles up on you and you're like, I kind of don't want to open that, uh, Asana anymore. What if I just start writing it on paper now? You know? So I'll probably try Curio nine. Well, and until I'll- I, until I, you know, until I botch it, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I never ever use the dates. I never, I never use it as a to-do list manager. Yeah. I use it for brainstorming. I use it for compiling. When I start a new project, I'll drag in like all the email contacts that are related to this project, the the emails that originated the project, uh, mm-hmm. mind map to like where I first started the ideas convert the mind map into outlines, uh, expand on it in like, uh, I thoughts X, bring it back in things like that. Like, and, and those become, uh, like foundation things. It doesn't matter how cluttered they get because it's just, it's a brainstorm, you know, like the more, the merrier. And then immediately I'll take things from it. Like it exports in all kinds of formats, OPML and CSV, and you can take your ideas and move them into other applications for further development. And, and, for that, it's perfect. 
So would you use it uh, if you were writing a book? You mentioned Scrivener before. Would you use this as a starting point and then end up in Scrivener? Like what's yes. your Okay, cool. And and okay. well, because like for example, I can take uh, I can turn an outline in a text box, like a standard kind of markdownish mm-hmm. outline, right. and I can convert that immediately into a mind map, expand on it a little bit, and then copy that out as OPML, mm-hmm. and then Scrivener can turn that into a markdown outline for me. Crazy. Yeah. Sounds dreamy. <laughs> it's fun <Cool>. stuff. <laughs> All right. So your third pick? Yay. So I'm not going to do the Asana thing with personal scrum, although that's going okay. I haven't botched that yet. Um, you know, uh, Sonos. Has anybody ever put Sonos on your list? Yeah, it's been on there before, but feel oh, free. crap. Well, no, I just I was talking with a friend of mine yesterday um, about Sonos. And, you know, my own personal experience with it was, was really interesting. I met the CEO of that uh, like three or four years ago, maybe three years ago. And... They were one of the first big advertisers on Engadget back when we owned Engadget. And that was one of the first things they advertised on. That was kind of like where they, they you know, put their dollars. And, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, I thanked them for that. So, and I told him, I said, it's very funny when I met him. Um, you know, back when you were advertising on my blog network, I was, you know, running up a second mortgage. Like, we were, it was a startup life, right? Like, I had no money. And, you know, like, we were just kind of scraping by. We were a startup. And so Sonos came out. And I'm like, this is amazing stuff. But it's going to cost me, like, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars to put them all over my house and right. I couldn't afford them. And so then like we do really well, we sell the blog network, we make money. Like now I can afford Sonos. Right. And it's like two ninety nine for a device. It's like nothing anymore. It's like really <laughs> kind of funny. And he's like, he, he thought it was very funny that kind of, you know, I love them so much, but I couldn't afford them. And then by the time, you know, and so now, now I use them everywhere. I have, um, have them all throughout my house. I have them in my office and, uh, they're simple and I love them. And then, Oh, I thought of a really good idea for them. I'll have to send this to them, but um, I got an apartment in San Francisco. I'm working out there. I got a Sonos device out there. It's really cool. So the other night, um, my son had his Sonos on in his room, and we play, you know, Pandora through it or our Sirius XM accounts from our cars on it, right? Or, or you know, or your own iPod, your iTunes, right? And I was, I, I was like, you know, you know, what would be really great is if I could pull up the Sonos app and then just take over his Sonos and start talking to him and tell him, like, shut off the lights, go to bed, brush your <laughs> yeah. teeth, and go to bed, right? That'd be really cool. And my friend was like. God, I would love. I, I need that too, like all the time. I want to talk to somebody in a room with a Sonos. So, so I have great ideas for the Sonos guys, and uh, I'll have to send them to them. And uh, but I love Sonos. It's just such a simple, easy, cool thing. Does Sonos have an API? I'm not sure. You know, so so the so friend I was talking to has developer friends who've worked on Sonos apps, and I don't know if it's in Sonos or things that are compatible with them. So they may have an API. I'll have to look that up. Um, but you know, it just seems like one of those things where they should just add that in it's crazy because then you can't respond because it's just a speaker but it's my kids and they shouldn't be talking back anyway (laughs) nest released an api i don't know if it was today or just recently but i just found out about it today Mm -hmm. and uh i signed up for a developer account and started sending curl commands to change the temperature in my house and i love it wow cool yeah all right so my third pick uh I, i i blogged the i blogged about this and i'll link the blog post but I went to a Nick Cave concert the other night, and uh, I got, we we pulled into a parking ramp near the venue, and I uh, I snapped a picture of the the parking column as I always do, mm-hmm. and then we went to the show and quickly realized that we didn't remember which ramp the parking column was in, and there are about fifteen ramps within a few blocks of the venue, and my friend and I both have this complete lack of. Uh, spatial, like, coordinate systems. Like, we can't imagine, like, we can't picture geographical uh, relationships. 
and this is I found a common uh, common disability. But uh, we ended up for two hours wandering around from parking lot to parking lot, not finding the right one. And um, and meanwhile, our phones had both died, and we were just it was just us <laughs> and and raw footwork, and uh, and it didn't go well. So I ended up at uh, a Marriott hotel. We tipped the concierge and recharged our phones, and I immediately grabbed the uh, photo of the column and downloaded an app called Exif Wizard mm-hmm. and popped it up and hit uh, map, and it showed me exactly where that photo was taken, and we got to our car. And it was it was great. And I, I've learned since then, I never opened the native photos app on uh, my iPhone. Mm-hmm. I, I use all kinds of other apps, uh, but uh, apparently this has been there for a while now. You can map your photos uh, straight from the iPhone um, or the iOS photos app. And that would have saved me some time if I'd have thought of that way, way earlier. But Exif Wizard was a, a free download and it was a, it, it saved my night. So I'm counting it as a top pick. That's a cool pick. Uh, it's, it's a roundabout way to do that. I mean, I've seen things where <laughs> no, I've, seen, I've seen things where people have like I think it was a guy who invented the QCat uh, way back when, which was this weird scanning device. Oh, I that, have one that ne- never worked. Yeah, those those things are nuts. Um, and he's he's got other stuff now. Uh, new New Air. But I think he was the one who had like this scripting language for everything. And one of his cool examples was you know your phone and your car are kind of synced, and then every time you park and you shut the car off, the phone goes and just drops a pin on the map. See, and that's Done. what kills me. You know? is I have an automatic, which uh-huh, right. does that. It does <laughs> that. But my phone has been really messed up lately. I haven't even installed the beta operating systems, and it's just been really messed up. And it had crashed mm-hmm. before we had gotten halfway through the two-hour trip to get to this concert. Right. So I didn't consciously restart the automatic app. Otherwise, it would have just told me where I had last parked. Right. And that's what that's what made walking around for two hours so painful is knowing that I had multiple ways of <laughs> avoiding this problem. And none of them had worked. But I think the real story here is, you know, big shout out to Nick Cave for having like so many people come <laughs> to see him that you can't find your freaking car at the end. Because a lot of people who were like big in the 80s or something, you know, there's like 12 cars in the parking lot. We all came right. together and like nobody cares. So, you know, more oh, man, he, more power to him. He packs a show, man. Awesome. He, it was the state theater and it was every seat was sold. And then it was, yeah, he's such a good performer too. But I... Nick Cave isn't my top pick, so I, I digress. <laughs> All right. Is that three and three? That's three and three. Yeah, you, you get to go last. You're like the, the home team. Right. Um, you know. Right. Get the last word in. It makes sense that way, though, doesn't it? Like, guests go first, and then I, I wrap up. Oh, yeah, if you want to spin it that way, that you were being polite to let the guests go first. Absolutely. Sure. Totally makes sense. I feel, I feel like... <laughs> I can't end the show. I don't know. I don't know what to say at the end. I don't, I don't know who, respond, who to thank. I mean, Spotify. It was with Shopify. I mean, we do have like, we do have one more uh, sponsor to mention. Oh my god! It is HostGator, which offers Linux VPS hosting, the perfect bridge between shared hosting and dedicated servers. Their VPS plans are completely customizable to match your specific hosting needs and can be easily upgraded to dedicated servers as your site grows. HostGator has fully managed 24-7, 365 support, along with root access for complete control of your container and weekly off-site backups. 
They offer one-click installers for whichever compatible platform you use, and the servers are scalable, so adding more resources at any time is easy. Visit HostGator.com and use the code DANSENTME for 50% off of all VPS hosting. And that brings us to the closing. I don't. I need a. I need a sound effect for the closing, like a sad trombone sound effect. Sure. But that and now that might it's something to that effect, but without the connotation that what is about to happen is bad. Really, I'd like the get smart door slamming noises. Like that'd be good. That's also, you know, like a, like a jail a jail door. Like go back to Oz on HBO and find like a jail door slamming and somebody whimpering. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you're Brian Alvey, B-R-I-A-N-A-L-V-E-Y on Twitter. Yes. And you can be found at the same, if you add a .com, that's your website. Right. I'm Brian Alvey on Twitter, on .com, and in real life. <laughs> well done. Thanks. And I am, uh, I am T.T. Scoff everywhere, and uh, I'm at brettterpstra.com and in real life. And that is episode 102. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thank you so much, Brett. It was awesome. Great talking to you. And we will see everybody in a week. <laughs> <laughs>